This is Who She Knows, a podcast produced by She Knows Media. And this is your host, Elisa Camahort-Page, Chief Community Officer for She Knows Media. Today, we have a single guest, and it's Zerlina Maxwell, a media director for the Hillary Clinton campaign, whose focus is on digital outreach to women and communities of color. She's also a political analyst, speaker, and journalist. Zerlina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us, the, the audience, a little bit about your background before joining the campaign and really how and why you ended up working for the campaign. Well, thanks so much for that question. Um, it's a little bit of a, a, an interesting journey. I think it was it's a little unorthodox. Um, but I come to the campaign from the world of journalism. Right. And so I worked for President Obama uh, in 2008 as a field organizer in Virginia on Hampton University's campus. And after that, when I returned to law school, I decided to start blogging and writing about politics. And even after graduating law school, I continued blogging and writing about politics. And mm-hmm. so writing became my career. And I, you know, wrote for Essence Magazine and Ebony Magazine and a website called The Grio, which still exists but used to be under the umbrella of MSNBC. Mm-hmm. And through that experience, I made obviously a lot of connections and relationships with folks, including folks who uh, work here at the campaign. And I was, you know, I'm a progressive leaning and feminist writer, and so obviously my politics aligns. And I got the call to come and be on the inside. Kind of out of the blue in February during the middle of the primary, I had considered certainly, you know, sort of in theory, um, working on the campaign. So when I got the call, I jumped at the opportunity. And so I guess the rest is history. It's been since February that I've been here, Mm -hmm. uh, which feels like a really long time (laughs) because we work every day. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. And so I was just going to ask, what does your day-to-day job look like? It changes depending upon what's going on, depending upon what she's doing depending upon what Donald Trump is doing. But essentially, I work here with another feminist from Emily's List, or formerly from Emily's List, Jess McIntosh. And we work on messaging for, quote unquote, influencers in digital spaces. So those are folks who have a lot of followers, a lot of influence. And a lot of people listening probably already know, but in spaces like Instagram and Twitter, black women and women of color more broadly are actually overrepresented. So right. Black women are among the most active and engaged users on social media platforms. And so one of the big prongs of my day-to-day is to come up with messaging based on what we're doing, what the communications team is doing, to help amplify what we're doing, whether that be a policy, whether that be a message to counter that, you know, divisive messaging you're hearing from Donald Trump's campaign. And then even beyond that, I'm also, you know, my portfolio has a lot of progressive writers um, Mm -hmm. and feminist writers. And so I'm essentially engaging and interacting with people who were my colleagues um, about different things that are coming up in the campaign. So many women in our community uh, follow you and are are fans of you. And Mm -hmm. when I reached out to my community, the She Knows and Blog Her communities and said, okay, I am getting to interview Zerlina, like, what what should I ask her about? And really, the questions fell into two camps, and I'm going to try and ask you about both kinds of questions. Um, the first set of questions were kind of, you know, we're we're kind of nerdy. You know, we're bloggers or influencers. We're using technology and social media every day. So there's some nerdy, wonky questions I'm going to ask you. But there were also um, numerous angsty campaign-related questions 
um, which to me communicated how important people think this election is. And a lot of the questions were about right. not um, how do we reach everybody? How do we, how are you um, helping digital outreach go beyond what people might call the choir? I was asked, for example, I was asked, how are you reaching out to millennials, especially millennials of color? How are you reaching out to boomers, especially older women of color? How are you reaching out to undecideds? How are you reaching out to those who are excited by more movements like Black Lives Matter, or even you could say Bernie Sanders candidacy? So that's a whole lot of questions. But how do you try to approach all those different communities? Well, one of the things I um, I just want to make clear is that, you know, I'm speaking from the perspective of my own personal job, right? right? And so um, just so folks know, our office here is a lot of people in it. And there are a lot of different people doing, um, you know, specifically this coalition group or this particular demographic group, or my job is to try to mobilize and persuade young millennials of color. That is my only job, right? We're fortunate um, enough to work for somebody who cares about policy, Mm -hmm. cares about the details. And so that allows for a lot of opportunities to communicate um, our specific plans to those specific communities where they are. So that means um, we're going on BT and talking about what we're doing for black women or we're going on, um, you know, Revolt TV to talk to young millennials of color about voting rights or specifically what we're doing about Mm -hmm. reproductive health care or if we are trying to package digital products that and, pro- and by products, I mean videos or memes or um, shareable content that then communicates our policy messaging. Like those are the days where I feel great because I feel like one of the um, benefits of working for somebody who is a policy wonk is you have a lot to offer. Um, you have a lot to offer people um, in terms of solutions to solve the problems that they're facing every day. So all of the numbers now show that one, millennials by and large are rejecting Donald Trump and the things that he's offering. And in large part, a lot of that is premised upon the fact that he is, you know, talking in very divisive and and Mm -hmm. bigoted language, right, about different groups and young people that turns them off. But you also have to have something to offer young people. And, you know, Hillary adopted many of the elements of Bernie Sanders' debt-free college plan, right? And so um, improved upon our own plan by using some of the elements that we felt would make the Mm -hmm. plan better. And I think that that's just one example of of a way in which we're trying to speak to those communities. And that is not only policy. Some of that is messaging. Some of that is the tools in which we're using to reach those folks. So that's Twitter, that's hashtags, that's Instagram, that's Snapchat, that's making sure that Hillary's um, op-ed in Refinery29 yesterday about um, you know, what it means to be a young woman fighting fights, that that then shows up in Snapchat Discover when you mm-hmm. click on Snapchat, right? Because a lot of young people, that's where they're going for their news. Um, and, and, and sort of understanding the, the way in which digital tools can be uh, used and utilized um, to reach out to those uh, different communities based upon which tools they're using to get their information. Now I get to use GIFs but I work for yeah, Hillary that's pretty Clinton. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I just, you know, and I think that that's really cool. It's sort of testament to like the moment that we're living in. We're in a moment where you can be a little bit more creative in the way in which you're trying to communicate a very political message. 
unlike other elections in my lifetime, this is the most important one. This is the one that we always say the election is very important. We always say it's the most important. But this is the one where I feel like if this doesn't turn out the way that we all want it to, like that can be life and death for mm-hmm. many different people. That can mean deportation for people and their family members. And that can mean the, you know, rolling back of so many civil, human, and political, economic, social rights that we've all fought decades to progress Well, So for those of us who are kind of on the wonky side of the house, um, you know, I think digital (laughs) became pretty impactful even in 2004 and 2008, but it was still like using, it was data-based and very fundraising-based. Social media, and like you said, creative distribution, you know, creative messaging and then distribution of that messaging seems to be really stealing the show this year. I mean, really, you have everything from the fact that Trump is leveraging millions of followers on Twitter from the get go to get free, basically, presence. But also, I'm really I'm intrigued by the fact that Secretary Clinton, um, I have watched multiple events of hers on Facebook Live. And I just think it's completely given me a window. And I've been following politics for, you know, a long time. And it's given me this window into the day to day hardcore, Mm -hmm. you're just going a place after place after place and sending out your message. I've really enjoyed watching some of those. Um, I've really enjoyed some of the the whole the memes, the little brief videos that speak right, right to our short attention span. When you like, if you could project yourself a hundred years forward, I think people will look at the 2004 to 2008 as being when politics really took advantage of data di- data mining and um, digitized fundraising in a completely much more vastly scaled way. What do you think they're going to say about this election? And what was the what innovation do you think they'll look back on and say that's when people that that's when that changed about political campaigning? Um, even though there are a million different screens and you know tons of hashtags and you have Facebook, you have Twitter, you have Instagram, you have all these different platforms, but everybody's in in certain in particular moments in the past few years have been focused on one thing um, because of a hashtag or one thing because of, you know, a Facebook live stream of a police encounter with a civilian. And I think that um, one of the things that this election has also demonstrated is is that political campaigns can use these tools as well to amplify their their messaging. And it's connected um, because I feel very strongly that um, poli- you know, politics in a lot of ways is th- and, and policy are the things that we need in order to improve those situations. So if that means that I learned of the problem of, I don't know how you would learn of the problem of police brutality because of a case in the news, but say you, you know, really hadn't thought about that or hadn't experienced it in your own life and you see a hashtag or a name trending and then you become engaged in that particular political or policy issue because of something that you saw on your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed. And then for a lifetime, you can become active and engaged in that issue. Even coming from my former career in journalism, a large portion of my writing um, as a feminist is about dismantling rape culture and Mm. ending the epidemic of campus sexual assault. And I have seen in the past few years how survivor-turned activists have used social media spaces and digital tools to help amplify that message to the point where, you know, people immediately understand that victim blaming is wrong. They immediately start talking about consent and bystander intervention in a way that they did not five years ago, that they did not seven years ago. 
And that's because it's just constantly something that we are seeing, we're discussing, we're learning from each other. And I think that digital tools are are a way in which we do that. They're not the solution. Right. They're just something to help facilitate our growth. Going hand in hand with that is that what it's not just... Um you know, that there's distribution and amplification. It's 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 the stories. It's taking the story of some individual you would never know existed. Mm-hmm. I think about here, I'm in Silicon Valley, and we've been recently going through a lot of upheaval over the case of the rapist Brock Turner, um, a yeah. Stanford swimmer. And it was the story of his victim. And, I, you know, it's hard to even really talk about. She wrote an incredible letter, mm-hmm. um, which was read in court, but then it went all over the place. The power of the the story, the story and the distribution and amplification mechanism together, um, is is really where it's at for me. Um, more Absolutely. than just let's find the people in the right zip code with the right perspective and try and get money from them. I, I get that that's Absolutely. a whole foundation, but I don't know if it changes the world like this distribution of stories. Social media wouldn't work unless there was a person behind it. So that's why, you know, the Twitter accounts that you like are people, even if they're representing organizations or if it's sort of like something that has a theme to it or a business. But if you know and believe and trust and and feel that that person is a real human behind the account that you can Mm -hmm. then relate to, you can empathize with, you know, essentially like I follow people on Twitter and Instagram that, you know, are, I follow them for health and fitness or for cooking. Um, but if they tell me to buy a shirt because I trust them on health and fitness and on cooking, I will buy the shirt they tell me to buy <laughs> yeah. because I trust them. So I think in a lot of ways, I find social media spaces to be about trust. Yes. And that the core of that is because I see you as a person. So I don't know if Twitter didn't exist, if we would have sort of progressed so far in our conversation about rape culture unless you had a number of survivor-driven hashtags with people talking about their own experiences and their own stories and talking about consent. I don't, because that's such an uncomfortable conversation. Yeah. It's so taboo. But now we have a space in which we can do it where I'm a real person talking about my real experience, but in a way and in a space where it feels disconnected and safer to do it than if I were standing up in front of a thousand people telling my story. So I think in some ways it, it it's a really powerful tool. And I think that might be one of the things that makes this moment a unique one. I mean, speaking of trust, I was just thinking that with the Obama White House and his approval ratings are quite high, and I feel like they have really brilliantly used social and and viral content, basically, to completely give make us feel like we have a window into their day-to-day lives, which I think makes mm-hmm. us feel more trust. The little videos, the Pete D'Souza's work, like um, Pete Souza, sorry, um, right. his work as the photographer and releasing all these photographs that just completely humanize them, but also make us, they create pop culture moments. I'm really, I'm so impressed with whoever gets him and, and the first lady to do all of that. And of course, Secretary Clinton is is obviously a different person with a different personality. She talks about it herself that she's not mm-hmm. like President Clinton or President Obama. She's she's what did she say? She she's uncomfortable with the public part of public service. Um, mm-hmm. And so the conventional wisdom is that she's more guarded into having these conversations and telling these stories. And yet I, I see her um, you know, on uh, with these Facebook live videos giving us that window 
Um, right. And I and I feel like if if she went on that same went down that same road of really letting people see those everyday moments, that it completely humanizes her, and I think that builds trust. Is that a do you, do you think that's an actual like acknowledged strategy? Is she going to be comfortable even on into the White House using social media to? build that same kind of relationship. You know, one example recently from something that we released, which was the behind the scenes at the convention. So it's sort of like the backstage video um, where even Obama is sort of like getting pumped for his speech. And you kind of see from her perspective (laughs) coming out when they pointed at each other and they did the hug, like you see her watching Chelsea and her response to that. I mean, one of the things that she talks about a lot is when she was running for the Senate in New York you know, people said a lot of the same things that they always say about her. Um, and so she decided that she was going to go on a listening tour and just sit down in rooms with people and listen to um, their stories and hear about what problems they were having and, you know, try to come up with solutions to make their lives better. That's that's literally how she um, began her uh, campaign for the Senate the first time. And then, you know, she gets elected she delivers on so many different things and she wins by a bigger margin than she won by the first time. And she has talked about this and I think it's actually um, illustrates that when she gets the job, she does an amazing job, but because we're in politics, you have to run a campaign, Um, which I don't know if I would be good at that. I mean, that's, you know, like imagine if, you know, instead of a job interview, you had to go on two year tour um, city by city convincing people that you should be in charge. You know, those smaller settings where she can really talk and interact with people face to face. Those are the moments she really enjoys because she's able to hear your story. And that's what sort of connects us all as humans. You know, one of the things I talk to my mom about a lot about um, is, you know, why Hillary um, inspires us as women, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and relating on that level. Well, I, I love Hillary Clinton because in the 90s when, you know, they, you know, attacked her for Hillary care and she, and they killed the bill and they said, no, we're not passing universal health care. She said, okay, well, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to go get health care for 8 million children. And so she worked to get S-chip. Um, and those kinds of examples I can then look to and say, you know, if I'm, if somebody's trying to knock me down, like they're not going to knock me out. And like, that's one of the things that my mom always says, she, she's a fighter. She never gives up. And right. that's something that I feel I want to aspire to. Mm-hmm. And that's also someone I'm proud to work for. I belong to some secret Facebook groups. I know there's been press about these secret Facebook groups around uh, Hillary's um, uh, candidacy. Yeah. And, you know, all the talk about the lack of enthusiasm or the lack of passion, I feel like there's this just huge undercurrent of people who actually feel that passion and huge enthusiasm and and just inspiration, as you say. And there's a certain sense of it's still not being okay. It's really I've never I've I've never experienced it before. Um, I am pretty public and vocal myself, but plenty of people, they are not. And they they feel like they need this space um, because it's safe. And they use that word. And I think on the one hand, we've talked a lot about how great the Internet can be. But that's that's kind of the downside, which is the Mm -hmm. distraction, the distraction of the trolling, the distraction of the attacking and ganging up. um, and, And that's the part that I feel like. 
Uh, I personally feel like some of the platforms have really abdicated their responsibility as community building social networks. Like, are they social or not? Because mm-hmm. trolling and attacking and abuse right. is not social. So we should maybe stop calling them social right, networks, right? right? <laughs> you know, and um, <laughs> um, so it's it's a super interesting thing um, to hear you talk about the love and inspiration because I think that's a necessary thing to get out there. The other thing that you mentioned... So I'm going to I'm going to kind of hop on it. And you talked about trying to leverage her ability to work with people and really hear people as, you know, once she gets in the White House, if she so does. Um, And one of the things I'm wondering is if the team, the campaign is already thinking about being in office and what can be done based on whether or not Congress, particularly the Senate, turns blue or not. Um, what what can how you know how we uh, is the campaign already looking into like what can be done by executive action like what can be there are a lot of lofty goals and a lot of great plans, what do you do with or without a cooperative Congress? Well, I'm sure that there's somebody higher level than me <laughs> thinking about um, the executive order question. That's not that's your not, wheelhouse. That's not necessarily <laughs> my purview. <laughs> but I would say um, that you know one of the things that things that comes up a lot is that many of the achievements and successes that she's had in her, you know, variety of different positions, none of none of them were done without some sort of bipartisan mm-hmm. compromise. She was able to reach across the aisle in, in many different examples and try to get something done. Um, and I think that that's instructive, but also doesn't necessarily mean that we're not trying to win back the Senate right. or the House, right? I think that, you know, you have people on the ground in states. We have um, Robin Mook, who um, comes from an organizing background, and he is focused on on-the-ground organizing. And that's actually how you win back the Senate and the House, right? You have to make sure that people aren't just coming out on November 8th to elect um, Hillary Clinton as president, they also need to make sure that she has a Senate and a House that she right. can work with that can get 60 and 218, right? She's not like, you know, you hurt my feelings. Now I can't work with you on this health care bill. She's like, I'm going to work. On-. I mean, they attacked her incessantly and she still was like, well, I want to run Senator Kennedy. Let's get back to work. You know, and th- that uh, example also comes up with expanding health care for uh, people in the National Guard or when she was trying to get increased health care access for people who are working at, at ground zero. And I think that, you know, there are so many different examples you can point to in her career, but sometimes when there are a lot of examples, people miss out on the central theme, which is she's, she's looking at mm-hmm. the results. And I think that um, she's shown herself to be a fighter, and that means she's going to compromise and, and, and try to reach a com- common mm-hmm. ground. She's very much focused on results. I have a super tactical question for you that came from our community. You probably know this as a blogger yourself. A lot of writers and bloggers in our community, um, they tend to lean on the introverted side. And so I had more than one person ask me, how can they help the campaign? But particularly, how can they help if like the thought of going door to door or the thought of joining a whole row of people doing telephone banking, if that makes them like shudder with um, introverted horror, um, what would you recommend is the best way to help? Well, there are a couple of different ways, right? If you can afford it, of course, donating is, is <laughs> what I, what I, the first right. thing I'm going to say, right? Um, because that then um, helps fund all of the different facets of our organizing and field 
field campaigns because you have organizers on the ground and they absolutely uh, we want to be able to hire more and and to get more people on the ground. But I would say that if you are, I mean, honestly, I understand like you don't want to go into a neighborhood and start knocking on the doors. But I would say that if you're comfortable talking to the people Mm -hmm. that you do know, that would be a place I would start. I would start by going to IWillVote.com because one, you want to make sure that you're registered and that your registration is up to date and matching your address. You also want to make sure that, you, you know, all the people in your household, that that's true for them as well. Um, and, you know, all the people sort of in your church group or your classes or your coworkers, you know, ensuring that they're all up to date with their registration. So that would okay. be the first thing. Um, and then even beyond that, actually, if you Google HillaryClinton.com and then get involved, there's an entire page with a, with a list of different ways you can get involved. And that's obviously making calls, but also you can host an event at your house, you know, with your friends and family members, and then perhaps make that a phone banking event that feels a little bit less scary because you're with yeah. people that you know. Um, you can call people in your own community. Um, but I would also say that you can do these kinds of events and then help fundraise from that mm-hmm. particular event. And then we also have a new app, um, which is essentially a field office mm. in your phone. Um, and you can do all of these different things from your wow. phone. Um, you can phone bank from your phone. You can get a canvassing uh, sheet from your phone. Um, so just to direct folks that HillaryClinton.com, get involved. Um, or the application you can download uh, in the App Store on your iPhone or your yeah, Android sounds... device um, would be a Pretty wonderful advanced. place to start. All right. Last, I have... We have a food conference coming up in early October. Food is like the number one topic that drives, you know, the Internet uh, after <laughs> after the obvious uh, that I'm not going to mention. But um, so I have two questions about food. Um, I, I first am curious. Uh, I'm a vegan and I'm curious. I know that Bill is kind of semi quasi, you know, President Clinton. Has, does <laughs> Hil- has Hillary adopted any of his semi quasi veganish eating at all? How healthy an eater is she? Yeah. I actually don't know the answer to that. I would be curious to find okay. that out as well. All I do know, and this kind of got a lot of funny press recently uh, when she did an interview and, she t- and they were uh, like, what, what's one thing you always have in your purse? And she said, hot, hot sauce, sauce in my bag. Um, and then everybody was like, and, and she was like, oh my God, she's saying right. it because of Beyonce. And I, I mean, yes, it was like, haha, I am saying it because of Beyonce, but also she has hot sauce <laughs> in her bag. <laughs> and, um, and, and she has had hot sauce and hot chili peppers in her bag um, since oh, yeah. forever. Uh, there is even articles and profiles about her in the White House when she was First Lady about all the hundreds of different types of hot sauce that she had in the White House kitchen. So then let's turn to you, because before we got recording, you were talking about how you had a protein shake for breakfast because you're trying to change a habit of having a bagel every day for breakfast. <laughs> yes. How hard is it to eat healthy or eat, are you, do you just give up? I mean, what are you doing uh, to try and stay healthy while the campaign is so hot and heavy? Well, it's a really good question because there, you know, everybody has a different approach, and I think some people have given up. I certainly think that some people are like, "No, I'm starting the whole 30 next Monday." Um, but I would say that for me, I think I have a lot. I have a very complicated um, relationship with food because I was a gymnast until oh, I was wow. 15. Then I did track and field, um, and so there are two sports where food is kind of a thing you're mm. thinking about a lot because I was literally weighed when I was 12. Mm. But I think on the campaign, what I'm thinking about is like I'm trying to get rest. I'm mm-hmm. trying to work out um, because then my my neurons and my brain is functioning and you make properly. Make better decisions. And then I'm trying to, 
Exactly. And so then I'm trying, and then as far as the food goes, I'm sure if somebody looked at my (laughs) daily diet, they would say like, you're eating way too many bagels of cream cheese. It's like (laughs) way too many. (laughs) Um, But I would also say that um, I'm also, you know, taking that 30 minutes every morning to do, you know, pretty intense cardio so that I can have the bagel later and not feel so bad about it. You get to pick your poison. And I, Exactly. So for me, I'm just trying to like eat a eat a vegetable when it's presented to me. Um, get rest. Still working on the water intake. That's something that I struggle with all the time. Even though there's a water machine, and I have like three water bottles on my desk, but I don't fill them up with water and drink them. So that so somebody please remind me to do that. Um, but I but I try honestly. I try kind of to you know work out. My dad says working out is like brushing your teeth. So I just try to work out. And then I eat um, kind of what I want, but not all the yep. time. No, I hear you. I hear you. That's it. Well, thank you for indulging <laughs> me with the the questions about food. I just sure. uh, I, I like to ask people uh, how they manage, especially when they're leading such busy and stressful and high high impact lives. It's really it can be so hard. Yeah. Zerlina, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I really thank enjoyed you. our conversation, and I think you shared so much great information on top of um, obviously telling us more about the campaign and everything that's going on. But I think you also kind of sent people who are interested off in the right direction to, to make a difference if that's how they want to make a difference. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It was really fun. That's it for this episode of Who She Knows, a She Knows Media podcast. For next week's episode, we'll be talking about converting your recipes and food blog into a cookbook. Should you? Could you? Would you? I'm your host, Elisa Camahort-Page, Chief Community Officer at She Knows Media. Please tweet me, at Elisa C, or leave a message for us on the Blogger or She Knows Media Facebook page. Or now you can email us at podcast at sheknows.com. We would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening.